It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. I'm Jason Palmer. And I'm Ore Ogumbi. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. Between you and me, Apple's new headset looks like something out of an eerie episode of Black Mirror. Some people might find that exciting, innovative, or even groundbreaking. But our correspondent has his reservations. And the British, perhaps more than most, just love the seaside. But for decades, they've chosen foreign beaches over their own. And the glories of Britain's coastal towns have faded, and badly. Lately, though, the tide has been changing. First up, though. There's just not enough of this going on around the world. Birth rates are falling everywhere you look. What demographers call the replacement rate, the number of babies the average woman needs to have in her lifetime in order to keep the population stable, is 2.1. At the turn of the millennium, that global average number was 2.7. Today, it's 2.3, and it's falling. Every one of the largest 15 countries by GDP lies below that replacement rate. And even Africa's high fertility rates have begun to tumble. The world is on track to post a decline in overall population for the first time since the Black Death. And that is going to have some serious knock-on consequences. Well, a shrinking population means lots of things. It means straightforwardly lower economic growth because the number of people helps determine how much stuff you're producing as an economy. Henry Kerr is our economics editor. But perhaps the most important thing is that a shrinking population generally means you have an ageing population. And more and more countries are facing this problem of ageing. Where we're headed is the relative shortage of young people compared to the total population. And what would the effects of that be? Well, there's one obvious implication of having fewer young people relative to the number of old people, and that is that it gets harder to support the world's pensioners. And everyone knows that a lot of public or state social security pension schemes are in trouble and that the long-run trajectory of government budgets looks really bad because of ageing populations. Ageing is, for example, the main reason that America's debt-to-GDP ratio is forecast to rise significantly over the next few decades as you need to spend on pensions and health care for the elderly. What's slightly less appreciated is that even if you're saving for a retirement privately, then you are still planning to draw on the output 
of the working age population in your retirement. You hope to draw down your savings and then go out in the world and spend them on restaurant meals or day-to-day living expenses or whatever it is you're buying. You need workers to be able to provide those goods and services. You have later retirements, higher taxes to pay for public pensions, lower returns for savers and and governments struggling with their budgets. But that's just the really well-known effect of the ageing population, the difficulty it creates paying for retirees. Which suggests there are some less well-known effects that you're about to worry me with. So the less well-known effect of an ageing population is that it affects the makeup of the workers in the population. And one reason that might matter is that young people have more of what psychologists call fluid intelligence, which is the ability to think creatively and outside the box to solve problems in entirely new ways. And that complements the crystallised intelligence of older workers who have accumulated knowledge and the ability to make incremental improvements. So what happens in an ageing society is you have a relative shortage of that fluid intelligence, of that disruptive type of creativity. So the risk is that an economy that's ageing has less innovation and therefore less productivity growth. And then on top of that, you have the danger that elderly voters at the ballot box are voting less in favour of policies that promote economic growth because they have less of a stake in economic growth. If you're on a defined pension, you don't have such a vested interest in wages going up, for instance. So you have this danger that you have an ossification of the economy. And the danger is that the resulting lack of productivity growth compounds over time into an economic loss that's quite big. But there is a countervailing argument on environmental grounds that fewer people is better for the world. To your mind, all these economic concerns outweigh that? Well, there are plenty of people out there who would say the world has too many people in it for environmental reasons. I think that that is short-sighted because generally when people have made these arguments, they're called Malthusian arguments after the 19th century economist Thomas Malthus, who famously thought that population growth would lead to starvation. Typically, they underestimate the potential for productivity growth and innovation to solve the resource constraints. So I think you need to be a bit conditionally optimist about the Earth's ability to sustain a higher population. It does depend on humanity's ability to use fewer natural resources per person, but that is possible and humanity is becoming more efficient. So the world may have space for more people after all, but lower fertility is often caused by improvements in in the lives of people in poorer countries, for example. It is true that low fertility is being driven by things that are good. So as countries develop, people gain more control over their lives. They have less need to have more kids, to look after them in old age, and infant mortality is lower, so fertility goes down. And all sorts of factors contribute as economies get richer to people choosing to have fewer children. Women have many more opportunities today in many economies than 50 years ago. And that probably affects fertility rates as well, but is also a very good thing. So it's clear that there are dangers ahead, even if some of the societal drivers are to be welcomed. I mean, what are the fixes? So I'm pretty sceptical of the populist conservative idea that low fertility is somehow a sign of 
societal failure and that what you need to do is return society to the norms of the mid-20th century in the West to get fertility up, not least because there are plenty of countries that have those conservative norms in place and also have low fertility today. But then when you look at the other side of the political spectrum, the fix that the left and that liberals like for the problem is immigration. And it's true that that can work for a while to an extent. It can work for any one country. But the issue is that this trend is affecting so many countries that by the middle of this century, it's quite plausible that you have a shortage of young, educated workers on a global scale. And obviously then it's impossible for the world to fix it by immigration. You can only move those workers from one country to another. Then you have pro-family policies, supporting parents, offering childcare subsidies and so on. But these have a somewhat disappointing record when people have studied their effects. So then you have to think about, well, how can you make better use of what the economy does have? And if you think about the potential shortage of educated young workers in the middle of the century, one way to ease that is to give better education to the hundreds of millions of people in the world who don't get a a good education in rural China, in India, in, in parts of Africa as well. And then even as fertility falls, and perhaps even as the population falls, you might still be able to increase your pool of educated young workers. But that has a bit of a sting in the tail, which is that if you implement successful development policies that make places richer with better education and so on, then of course, as they get richer, their fertility rate is going to fall faster. It sounds as if every one of the fixes comes with a caveat. I mean, in the long run, is it your view that we are heading inexorably towards a world with fewer older people? Yes, I think that probably is true. When you look at the trends and when you look at the limits of the potential solutions here, and that's before you even consider any technological breakthroughs that might allow people to live much longer as the century goes on. One way you might solve the issue is just by having really big productivity breakthroughs that make the economy much more efficient to make it easier to deal both with the loss of creative young people and with the burden of supporting uh, lots of retirees who are drawing on the economy. And so if we look at the advances in artificial intelligence and potentially in robotics that could come over the next decade or so, then they really couldn't have come at a better time. If we are going to enter an era in which productivity growth surges on account of this fantastic new technology, then obviously that could really help the trajectory of economic growth, even as societies age. So really, I would say humanity needs to innovate around this problem. And all the AI optimism that's out there is really welcome, not just in itself, but also because we really need technological development to overcome our ageing and demographic problems. Henry, thanks very much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Jason. World peace might feel kind of like a pipe dream, but what if I told you it's not? 2024 will see more than 50 elections around the world. And in some places, peace is actually on the ballot. One reason is because countries in Europe and Latin America have been experimenting with this thing called feminist foreign policy. Because right now, the way that we wage war and peace, it's kind of a boys club. 
The new season of Things That Go Boom from Inkstick Media and PRX is coming March 18th. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. This week, Apple launched a headset that could change the way we experience virtual reality. Introducing Apple Vision Pro. The era of spatial computing is here. The Silicon Valley giant, the creator of the iPhone, has called the Vision Pro the most ambitious product it has ever created. Tim Cook, the CEO, has dubbed it the successor to desktop computing. This marks the beginning of a journey that will bring a new dimension to powerful personal technology. Now, the device certainly looks impressive, but how well will it sell? Well, this was a funny event. It was both highly impressive and at the same time, weirdly underwhelming. Tom Wainwright is the technology and media editor at The Economist. The technology was amazing. This looks like the most impressive headset on the market now. But there was just a big question hanging over what to do with this amazing device. Okay, so let's start with the upside. What about this tech makes it seem so impressive? Well, start with the way that you control it. I mean, other headsets tend to require you to hold little joysticks in your hands that allow you to control the user interface. Vision Pro doesn't do that at all. You just use your fingers. There's no other controller involved. It has little cameras on the outside that can tell when you're tapping your fingers together or flicking them. And at the same time, cameras on the inside of the device track your eyeballs. And so rather than using anything like a mouse, you literally just look at what you want to click on and it can scan where you're looking. It uses voice commands as well. This user interface, Apple describes it as being as if like magic. And people who have had the chance to use it so far report that it does seem to work pretty well. So that's one thing. Another thing it does, which is very new, is that it can scan the user's face and then it projects a sort of computer-generated image of their face onto the front of these goggles. So you can see the user's eyes or what looks like the user's eyes. And the idea is that this is to make using this device a, a bit less of a sort of antisocial experience than using a VR headset generally is. There's loads of other innovation in there, but it all adds up to a package which is more advanced by far than anything else on the market. As impressive as this all sounds, you said that the launch was underwhelming. Why so? The technology itself is great, but there was a weird sort of lack of imagination when it came to coming up with examples of what people might want to actually do with this amazing device. I mean, the examples they came up with were things like you can use Microsoft Teams, but on a virtual screen, or, you know, you can look at all your phone pictures, but they'll be really big. And it seemed kind of unimaginative. And I wonder if it would leave a lot of potential users wondering what the point of this so-called spatial computing is. It seems that so far, most of the use cases involve taking two-dimensional apps from desktop or mobile and just projecting them into midair. Coupled with this, obviously, was the price. This was in advance rumoured that it was going to cost $3,000. The final price that they announced was 3500 The Meta Quest Pro costs less than a third of this, and the Quest 2 costs something like a tenth of this. So, it's seriously expensive. Your average consumer is not going to be buying this. This is really something that's aimed at developers, I think. So, Tom, this announcement has triggered quite a bit of buzz, but might this turn out to be a flop for Apple? 
Well, yes and no. I think in immediate sales terms, absolutely, it will be a flop. I mean, analysts are thinking it could sell something fewer than 200,000 units in its first year. And just to give an idea of how little that is, the iPhone sells about 200 million units a year. But I don't think Apple really mind about this. The idea of the Vision Pro at this stage is to get the machine out there so that developers can start figuring out what to do with it, so that they can start coming up with use cases, so they can make the so-called killer apps so that when in future it's easier to make these things a bit cheaper, a bit smaller, and get them out to a seriously massive audience, they've come up with a few more convincing, more interesting things that you can do with this device. And, you know, it takes time to do this. When the iPhone was launched, it was a similar story. There was a presentation where the technology was very impressive, but the things that Steve Jobs, at the time Apple's chief executive, suggested that people could do with their iPhone were all kind of previous generation things. You know, it was all about making phone calls, doing emails, browsing the web, listening to music. And people kind of thought, well, you know, I can already do that on my laptop or on my iPod. And it was a few years before developers really came up with all the kind of killer apps, whether that was group chats or ride hailing or mobile payments, all of this stuff, which has made mobile phones so completely essential. I suspect it could be the same with these glasses. I think in a few years' time, people will have come up with things to do with them that seem obvious in future, but which now people haven't yet really thought about. But still, with no killer apps and for such a high price, this does sound like quite a risky move. Why has Apple decided to launch now? You're right. I think there are risks. I mean, Apple's got this reputation for coming up with devices which are really seriously polished and just right first time. And the Vision Pro is not quite that. It's got this bulky external battery. The battery life is only two hours. It's a slightly sort of work in progress kind of product. And so there's a risk to Apple that it undermines its reputation for producing great stuff. The reason that I think it's come up with this at rather an early stage, I think there are a couple of things. One is competitive pressure, mainly from Meta, which is its main rival in this area. Meta's been on a bit of a hiring spree and an acquiring spree when it's been making its own headsets. And I think Apple must have thought if it leaves it much longer, then there's a risk that Meta gets ahead in this game. I think the other reason is that there's just so much long-term future potential in AR, or at least most people seem to think there is, that Apple feels that it's worth getting out there early with this device. Because in the more distant future, people think that you could have a set of AR glasses, which are really thin, more like the kind of eyeglasses that people wear today. And once you've got something like that, I think you are looking at something that could be like the next smartphone. Companies that get in there early and come up with the kind of operating systems and the kind of app ecosystems are going to be well placed when the technology reaches a stage where it becomes something that everybody wants to use all day long. But given that competitors have had such a head start, I mean, you mentioned Meta, do you expect Apple to win the battle for the VR eyeballs? I suppose one thing to say is there doesn't have to be just one winner. You know, you may find that Apple occupies the kind of high-end, expensive end of the market and that someone else, perhaps Meta, plays the kind of Android role. So something like that could happen. But Apple is well-placed. This product blows everything else out of the water, for now at least. And I think that they've got better relationships with developers than Meta. Developers also like making stuff for Apple, of course, because Apple's got the richest consumers. Winning over people who are likely to come up with those killer apps is probably something that Apple is better placed than others to do 
at the moment. This is a bold move by Apple. And if anyone looks well-placed to take control of this market right now, I think it has to be them. Tom, thank you so much for your time. Thanks. In 1936, an enterprising businessman lit upon a way to make the British seaside even more unpleasant than it is already. Catherine Nixie is a Britain correspondent for The Economist. And so the holiday camp Butlins, with its famous seaside chalets and redcoat-wearing staff who jollied British holidaymakers along in knee competitions and sing-alongs, was born. Butlins, the big holiday, where everyone enjoys everything at no extra cost, like the monorail at Butlin Skegness. It's a big holiday for kiddies. With the way swimming, Billy Butlin did this was he took the natural advantages of the British seaside, so ICCs, leaden skies, average annual temperatures of about 10 degrees C. And then he added these low wooden huts, added a tannoy system to rouse them each morning, and some stringent rules that ordered them all back into those same huts by 11.15pm each night. And in doing this, as the author Bill Bryson observed, Butlin had repackaged the prisoner of war camp as a holiday, and this being Britain, everybody loved it. It's a big holiday for everyone with everything to enjoy at Butlin's. Britain has a long relationship with seaside towns. It's given credit for inventing them in the 18th century, and it's regretted it more or less on and off ever since. Their inhabitants were among the most likely to vote for Brexit and are still among the least likely to regret having voted for Brexit. Metropolitan sorts in general find the seaside a bit puzzling. There is a very long tradition of writers going to the seaside and saying, good Lord, this is horrid. Despite the distress to intellectuals, lots of Britons do seem to enjoy the seaside. Oh, I do like to be beside the seaside. They persist in not merely going to the seaside, but in living there in quite large numbers. I mean, in a sense, this is partly an accident of geography. Britain is a long and narrow place. Wherever you are in it, you will be within 75 miles of the coast. But it's, it's a bit more than that. On average, 12.5 million people a year chose to visit Blackpool, which is a seaside resort in the northwest of England, between 2017 and 2019. To put that in context, Oxford, which is possibly more famous, attracted only 8 million. But these places really matter. I mean, they matter historically. They matter to Britain's sense of self. We talk about our island story, and our history is littered with references to beaches, fighting people on them. How Britain sees itself is as an island. Intellectuals might find them distressing, but to understand Britain, you need to understand its coasts. You just have to go to the seaside today, pretty much anywhere in the southeast of England particularly, and the decline is really obvious. The towns are kind of housed like hermit crabs in these structures, these really grand structures that were clearly built for other ages and other people. They're in imperial hotels and pleasure piers, these places that were made for grander eras than the seaside has today. If you go to these seaside towns now, and I've spent some time this year touring around them, they feel kind of oddly frozen in time. It's almost as if a sort of apocalypse has struck and nothing has changed for decades. So the adverts on one hotel I found 
promised colour TV in all bedrooms and then ballroom dancing for various groups and a vague promise of evening entertainment. Which, by the way, is unlikely to be as entertaining as evening entertainment once was in holiday camps because, according to one academic, many of those who worked as waitresses in these early camps were, in fact, also prostitutes. Epidemiologists have this nice term of lifetime travel tracks. Your great-great-grandfather will have maybe travelled tens of miles. Your grandfather will probably have travelled hundreds, perhaps thousands, in the Second World War. Today, you'll be really unusual if you haven't travelled pretty much all the way across the globe. The embrace of the seaside in Britain came as trains and paid holidays extended working Britain's lifetime travel tracks to hundreds of miles from a handful of miles. And then the abandonment of the seaside came when aeroplanes extended Britain's travel tracks to thousands. And so by 1981, more people were taking their two-week summer holiday abroad than at home. And it's clear that Britons did still like to be by the seaside, but generally speaking, somebody else's. But if you go down south in Margate, a seaside resort in the southeast of England that's quite easy to reach from London, some of the things that you see there are your absolutely traditional seaside fare. There were lots of amusement arcades, although nobody in them looked particularly amused. They were just pushing coins into slot machines. I asked one woman if she was having a nice time and she said, not really, it's just something to do, isn't it? But there are also in Margate quite literal signs that things are changing. Londoners who've been priced out of buying a house in the capital have started to turn up in these seaside towns. And as they come, these places are changing. The old neon seaside signs that promised tropical beaches and Tyrannosaurus rexes, they're going and they're being replaced by these incredibly tasteful hand-painted wooden ones in these muted middle-class arrow and ball colours that promise you traditional pubs and handmade ice cream and all the things that Londoners down for the day would like to see. In the new Margate bookshop, which was very lovely, I saw lots of earnest people in knitwear and some of them were fretting about gentrification, which is, of course, a sure sign of increasing affluence. As the shop's owner told me, you just can't move for flat whites in Margate. So it seems that the tide of the British seaside might, at last, be turning. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. Let us know what you think of the show. You can get in touch at podcasts at economist.com. And if you're not a subscriber to The Economist, you really are missing out. Dive in. Get a free 30-day digital subscription by going to economist.com slash intelligence offer. The link is in the show notes. We'll see you back here tomorrow. World peace might feel kind of like a pipe dream. But what if I told you it's not? 2024 will see more than 50 elections around the world. And in some places, peace is actually on the ballot. One reason is because countries in Europe and Latin America have been experimenting with this thing called feminist foreign policy. 
Because right now, the way that we wage war and peace, it's kind of a boys club. The new season of Things That Go Boom from Inkstick Media and PRX is coming March 18th. Find it wherever you get your podcasts.